Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. A little while ago, I came across a really thought-provoking book called Food Philosophy, An Introduction. It was thought-provoking in the best possible way, challenging me to think more deeply about lots of things that I'd previously taken for granted. For example, I've always comforted myself with the thought that if I want to eat meat, then at least the animals should have a good life and, if possible, a good death. But can there even be such a thing as a good death? There are also deep questions about the nature of flavour and taste. If you've been listening to Heat This Podcast for a while, you'll know how difficult I find it to think about those things. Food philosophy goes a long way to clarifying those ideas. Its author, David Kaplan, is Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Texas. He doesn't always aim to provide answers, but he does raise the questions. And it was a real treat for me to talk to him, starting off with perhaps the fundamental question. Why does food, as a topic, need its own philosophy? I think very few things you know, need philosophy, um, but... Um but we often find ourselves doing philosophy, whether we know it or not. And just, you know, we professionals are, uh, are frankly just better at it than, uh, you know, than, uh, than most people are. So, you know, people often find themselves having, uh, conversations, thinking to themselves, uh, about food in a way that is either, you know, directly philosophical or it's bumping up against, you know, philosophical questions. So, you know, so the obvious one for food is just, you know, how something tastes and, you know, whether or not we taste the same thing and whether or not, you know, tastes are objective or, or relative, you know, who gets to say and, you know, and so on. And so, you know, that's actually bumping up against like a really interesting philosophical question about, you know, where flavors are and whether or not, you know, all preferences are equal and, and so on. And so, you know, I think people are actually doing something like a philosophy of food, just not that well. You know? so, yes. And people, ethics is the other one where I think people do. Right. A, yeah. Okay. Well, you've structured the book very carefully to take us through different aspects of philosophy. So, and I, I think that's you know, as the professional, you've you've done it in in an order that makes sense. So so let's just go through like that. I mean, you start off with with metaphysics, which, as I understand it, is about the nature of things. And to a simple non-philosophical type like myself, food is food. Um, I mean, occasionally people say, "Let food be your medicine." They don't mean that literally, I don't think. But isn't food just things we can eat? Well, I think sometimes people really do mean, uh, let food be your medicine. Uh, maybe not to cure some kind of condition or disease, but just for maintaining health. You know, the, your oatmeals or getting your omega-3s or something like that. So, you know, we often do see food kind of functioning uh, as medicine. But, you know, is food just food? Yeah, for the most part, it's pretty unproblematic, you know, in, in, until it is. And then, you know, it's when you, you eat something and you say, you know, that's not a taco. 
You know, you call that pizza. Uh, that's a kind or, of authenticity issue. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I nudge that into a metaphysical issue. I, I think that's, you could say that's it, like a purely social category. But I think you're asking a metaphysical question about, you know, what the nature of something is, whether or not it's, it, it's up to standard, whether or not it has the necessary or sufficient conditions to be something. So I, I think that's another example of ways in which people often find themselves doing something philosophical, maybe just without being fully aware of it. And, and does lab-grown meat or uh, cashew cheese and various right. other, does that figure into that? I mean, is it, is it cheese? Does it matter whether you call it cheese or something right. else? Right. You consider that a kind of metaphysical issue? Yeah, I consider that a metaphysical question. You know, it's not, not is it whether or not it's food, oh, arguably. I mean, some people might, might protest. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, look, I, I try to eat uh, vegan as much as possible. Some vegetarian, a little dairy, occasional fish. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't have any, anything consistent. But yeah, I often find myself eating these fake meat products, and then you know, looking at the list of ingredients, and you know, they they run you know thirty or forty ingredients long, and I often wonder, you know, like what what am I eating? You know, <laughs> surely in in that sense, you know, like a chicken leg is much more wholesome because at least it's you know it's just a it's just a chicken leg. You know, it's not it's not filled with all these other things that aren't really recognizably food items. <laughs> I think that's why a lot of people balk at at the artificial foods. Yeah, I, I, I feel that quite strongly. And it shades into your next kind of category of epistemology and, and, and how, we, how we learn about things and know about things. And, and the very fact that these, quote, artificial, unquote, foods have names like meat or cheese or burger or whatever is, is already trying to tell us something about them. Right, and often that can be contentious. So when the the dairy lobby, you know, sues the soy milk industry for the use of the word milk, you know, out of fear that people might mistake, you know, soy milk for cow milk, or the case I mentioned in my book about, you know, Just Mayo, the company that made the vegan mayo, yeah, uh, the fact that they were um, challenged. Uh, because strictly speaking, it's not mayonnaise. It doesn't have egg in it. So it because the FDA it, says it must have egg in it. Yeah, yeah, must have egg in it. And so, you know, so the compromise was was interesting. They they had to emphasize the uh, the just in the meaning of justice rather than just as an only. And and I think they had to change their logo to make it more you know yeah. more, appear like more like a plant. Yeah, I I must say I I think that pivot on the word just was. Um, scrambling a little, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, but an, I mean, the, this question of how we learn about foods and what, what I mean, they all shade into each other, these questions. I think, you know, separating them out is hard. But the stories we tell about the foods we eat, is that part of the epistemology that I know this is a good food and, and, and it, because of the stories I've heard about it? Yeah, I, I think so. And so the reason why I, I spent some time on, on food narratives uh, was, um, you know, when you read sort of in, in media and journalistic accounts, 
or in alternative media and criticisms, typically of you know large-scale industrial agriculture. You know, there's this these themes, these these motifs, frankly, these narratives that just start you know appearing over and over. Once you learn how to spot them, then you you find that they are just you know recurring and uh, sometimes helpful, usually a little bit tiresome, right. and often kind of close off and, and, and narrow the debate. And so, you know, I think the most typical ones are sort of this techno-utopia, where, you know, new developments in science and technology are just going to make everything better for everyone, food more healthy, better for the environment, better tasting. Right. Then the flip side is sort of the techno-dystopian one where, you know, we're just, we're all just kind of doomed, uh, frankly, because of science and technology that's kind of pulling us away from our roots. And then the the flip side, or the third part of the techno dystopian is the romantic narratives, you know, and those are the ones that kind of color our perceptions of what's, you know, natural and wholesome and organic. And yeah, the bucolic scene with the cows grazing on the grass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And none of these are entirely false. I think that's what's what's interesting about the narratives. I think they 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 tend to get at something that's right, but uh, you know, just you, know, you got to be be mindful and know when to you know you know get off that train. Moving along, moving along, and I know we're doing we're we're doing this rather bite sized. Um, God, it's hard to avoid the food puns, isn't it? I mean, I tried really hard in my book to avoid them, yes, because they can become uh, they can become cloying if you're not. Yeah, careful. I'm not thinking. I'm just just <laughs> suddenly surprised. My anyway. No. Um, okay, aesthetics. You mentioned that right at the beginning. The question of taste. The question of good taste. Do we taste the same thing? Can we compare them? How do we judge? Um, that seems that's always been one of the great mysteries to me. Not good taste in the sense of refined people like this thing, but what tastes good? Um, yeah, I, I think these are vexing questions. And so much of it with, um, with tasting, because, you know, it's, it's in our mouths, because we come into contact with it, it's, I think, much easier to see, you know, how we affect what's there, how we affect the, the nature of the flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's possible that, you know, our ears affect, distort, shape, you know, what things sound like in our eyes, how things appear. Um, but with tasting, it's, it's really undeniable. Namely, you know, how things taste can depend on, you know, the time of day, what I have just eaten, uh, some biological quirk, all sorts of kind of idiosyncratic factors just having to do with my mouth and my tongue at the time. I'm, yeah, I, there's that amazing body of work by Charles Spence at Oxford on things like, you know, a crunchy, a crunchy potato chip tastes fresher than a less crunchy potato chip. Um, and that, that seems to be a general thing. And then there's also the strange genetic things, which I suppose are a bit like color blindness. So the people, my wife, my, my wife hates cilantro. It tastes like soap right. to her. Um, and there are, there are those as well that kind of interfere with thinking. I mean, whenever you say um, taste, is in, taste is in the food, people say, well, how come cilantro tastes different for some people? It's a really complicated question. I think it's a really complicated question. And, and, and if, uh, if the people who have the, the 
soapy cilantro gene come to you know dominate the population, you know, then those of us who find cilantro is kind of fresh and delightful will be, you know, viewed as the outliers who have you know kind of something wrong with us. But I mean, it's hard to say, right? You know what, what cilantro really tastes like, uh, if because it, it it seems to depend on us, um, really essentially. Are you interested also in or expert tasters or trained taste panels, where you know people have to go through quite rigorous training in order to enable them to to judge things consistently and and for their judgments to be comparable what is that does that tell us anything about the nature of flavor and the nature of taste i think so so i tend to be somewhat of a a taste realist i mean i think there's there's something there and uh we can um i don't want to say we can get it right but i think we can come to some kind of agreement on it right in some sense it doesn't matter you know what the the tasteometer says is in it, or what the space aliens or what the omniscient being says how it tastes. I mean, it's about you know humans and what we like and dislike. So I think we can often come to some kind of uh, consensus about how things taste. Uh, but um, we often need uh, we often need help with with uh, with a vocabulary that often you know you and I don't have, and that's I think part of what the experience tasters do is they know how to not only pay attention but they're they're just good at you know attaching adjectives to some of the same things that you and I can taste so what I would liken it to is the first time I remember when I started to listen to jazz it was just oh I was listening to something with someone who was a good listener and all he would do is he would just say you know do you hear that bass line isn't that, listen to this trumpet playing, it's really bright, mm-hmm. you put on something else. Mm-hmm. You know, this one's a little bit less lively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, I, I think you're right, I, I hear it as well, but now suddenly I, I have this, this vocabulary of, you know, brightness and swinging and so on. I mean, that shades into the connoisseur thing, especially with, for example, with wine, where, you know, the wine connoisseur says, um, this has got hay and um, a slight green pepper to it. And they don't mean hay and they don't mean green pepper in the ordinary sense, but they've learned to attach those words and you can learn to attach those words to the... It's, it's developing a vocabulary and agreeing what, that, what those words mean. Yeah, there's um, a class here at, uh, at my university. I think it's called Beverage Survey. It's in the School of Hospitality and Management, and it's required for such and such major. But you know, I think anyone can take it. <clears throat> and I often get students who've taken this class, beverage survey, and whenever this topic comes up about sort of objectivity and relativity of taste, uh, they're always the first to jump in and tell the class. They say, "I'm telling you, you know, in the in our class, we tasted a bunch of different wines. We tasted beer and we tasted soda." I swear to God, you know, it's actually in there and we all tasted the same thing. And so they're often really helpful to have in class as the, uh, you know, providing sort of firsthand testimony <laughs> that there's something there and you can you can get it right in the sense of at least coming to some kind of um, agreement with uh, 
you know, with your colleagues. There's something, I don't know, sort of cultural, sociological <clears throat> going on about kind of mocking the wine connoisseur. That, that's part of our just kind of, you know, I don't know, <clears throat> working class, every man heritage where it's sort of sport to make fun of the, the wealthy class. And right, that's just the wealthy snoot, you know, getting their getting their comeuppance. You know, we, we, we love that. So that's why we love reading the articles that that point out how, you know, even these experienced wine connoisseurs were were tricked, right? You know, the white wine is is in a bottle that's red and they think it's red red wine and so on. And then and then, you know, we love it. Aha, I knew those rich snots, you know, they think they're better than us and they're not. But that that's a high taste, low taste or high culture, low culture yeah. thing as well. And it's sort of that, that judgmental thing is then okay, let's 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 move on to, to ethics, which for a lot of people means only one thing, and that's killing animals to eat them. Um my my view is I don't eat a lot of meat, but I like the idea that the meat I eat had, quote, a good life, unquote, and even better, a good death. Is that, is that fair? Is that something? Can I, I, I can live with it, but should I be changing my view? Um, it depends uh, who you are and, uh, and where you are. And uh, and when you are so, if uh, if that's your only option, you know. Again, I, I students often bring up these examples, sort of these desert island kind of you know life or death scenarios where it's you know it's it's you, your family, and a and a cow, and you know the the challenge is you know wouldn't you rather kill this animal than than face death? And, and by the way, I don't know if I would, um, but it's not life or death for you, you know. And so those of us who live in advanced industrialized western societies i mean we, you know we have options and you know we can uh, we can leave the animals alone if uh if if we like to as opposed to those who live in in livestock dependent societies as the name suggests they depend on the livestock for uh uh for labor for milk for for wool for uh you know for food for uh uh for money right you take take the little babies and and sell them and so on so that, and we're not we're not dependent on our animals in that sense. But look, there's nothing wrong with the way you frame it. I mean, it's we don't get to ask the animal about, you know, what kind of what kind of death uh, it would prefer. I mean, we know what kind of life it would prefer. They they certainly give us those indications. I would wager that uh they do, they don't want any kind of uh, uh death whatsoever. You know, so the argument that I was uh, Toying with that, um, I might be right. Is um, you know, just let's let the animal live out its life, and uh, let's take its life not on our schedule, but on on its schedule. And you know, I mean, you know, we've all been around enough people who are aged, and yeah, you know, like w- when it's time to go, often they know it's it's time to go. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've broken my hip. My, my heart's not getting any better. Like, uh, I, I'm not living for much at this point. And I'm sure there's some kind of animal equivalent to that where it's, it's lived its decent life and, yeah, you know, it's had enough. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I think if it's given a, um, not just a painless death, but a, 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 a death that's 
uh, free from, uh, from fear. Yeah. Is it a question of ethics or, or political philosophy, whether we should feed, whether we have any duty to feed hungry people? Well, I mean, in terms of its, uh, its consequence or efficacy, then, yeah, that's, that's a political matter. I mean, I suppose, I guess maybe a way to frame it is, you know, people are, are hungry and deprived because of political circumstance. So it, it seems, you know, it has a political uh, cause and should have a, you know, a political solution rather than, you know, just kind of relying on the, the goodwill of individuals often in, in faraway places. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with, uh, with helping others. And I think we have a general obligation, um, to help others, not all the time, but, but sometimes. And so, um, I think we have, we have to do something. I don't know if we, if we have to necessarily feed people, but, you know, we have to help, we have to give to charity, we have to give blood, we have to, Hmm. we have to do things for others. The, the other point in which politics plays a huge role or government plays a huge role is is in this whole question which is becoming louder and louder and louder you know fix the food system the food system is broken we need to fix the food system and mostly it seems the food system isn't going to fix itself because it's run by large corporations their duty is to their shareholders i guess and and they're not they're not interested in fixing the food system, except in as much as you know they can get us to buy more food. Um, is is there a is is there a, a duty on government to fix the food system or to or to balance the iniquities of the of the current food system? Yes. <laughs> no. No. Well, no, that's perfect. Uh, I ask a long and complicated question. You give me a great simple answer. I love that. Um, no, but what that consists of is is immensely complicated because the food system itself is just Im- immensely complicated. If if you were to try to map it out, just this dizzying, you know, assemblage of connections between, you know, between land, air, and and water, and uh, energy sources, and and animals, and governments, and institutions, and and. <laughs> And laws and customs and economies and so on, and so, you know, where to find uh, the justice among all these interrelated parts is is uh, is no small task. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, ultimately, you know, that's the charge of a government. At least they there's a couple places they have to focus. You know, that's on on humans and uh, and on animals, and, and because. We're all kind of dependent on these environments. Something about this kind of nexus of food, animal, environment are the things that uh, that they have to take care of. Okay, final kind of area, um, existentialism. Um, it's hard to know really what the existential question is because if we're to continue to exist, we have to eat something what does it matter what we eat yeah i think what i'm getting at with food existentialism um in some ways following the tradition of you know kind of the the mount rushmore of existentialists 
um, where, I mean, one of the main questions is just kind of what's our relationship to, you know, sort of to the dominant goings on. What's our relationship to other people? What's our relationship to our societies? And, you know, what kind of attitudes can we take on it? And, you know, how can we be free in light of these uh, limitations, bodily limitations, limitations due to um, whatever, our mortality, you know, we die and limitations kind of imposed on us just by the natural world, right? We're not, we can't fly, we can't breathe underwater and so on. Um, how can we live? How ought we to live um, in light of um, the conditions that also kind of, you know, constrain us? And so uh, I think to be, you know, food, it's not just, I mean, it may seem to be the kind of thing that we only interact with, you know, a few times a day, provided, again, we're not, you know, subsistence farmers and so on. Uh, but, you know, you give it some thought and it, it may not be the kind of thing that we can really ever kind of fully detach ourselves from. So, you know, it's not just the rhythms of our day. It's, it's our hunger and our, and our thirst. That's also kind of affecting what we can and, and can't do. Our, our lives are often, um, Again, kind of shaped and constrained by our, our food environments. This is these. It's sort of these. I guess it's like a cluster of influences and effects, including one's own body, that that I think I've described our existential situation. And and food is uh, is embedded and ingrained at uh, in, at every different level. But but there is a kind of a trivial level for all this in the sense that um, you you use the example of the pineapple pizza or pineapple on a pizza and and I am not the kind of person that eats pineapple on a pizza and maybe you are I don't, I don't want to prejudge that but um, I define my existence by the foods I won't eat if I were sure. kosher or halal Mm -hmm. um, and by the foods I do eat. And, and so in that sense, food is tied up with my existence, my idea of myself. Um, it doesn't need to be. I mean, there's a sense in which that's almost a luxury because I have a choice of what to eat. Yeah, and I guess I think I, I suppose I want to defend those, those little trivial choices I mean, right, you know what it's like. You have a, whatever, you, you have your little piece of pizza in front of you and, and you don't quite like the way, you know, the, the toppings are arranged. So, you know, you take a moment and make sure that, you know, this bite actually has a, a mushroom and, the, you know, you don't get too much anchovy in, in that bite. And that, that's right, nothing could be less important. Like literally nothing could be less important in the world than, you know, what your next bite is like. Uh, but, you know, what? it's your life. And, and you know, we don't, we don't live our lives on these, these big broad scales. And we're often, you know, most of us are very small and we can't really have much an effect on others. And so, you know, we, we do what we can to, to make the world around us better. But there's nothing wrong with, you know, dwelling over that, that next little morsel. Well, I think that's why we find 
the idea of people existing on Soylent or, or you know, the, the dream, the utopian dream of a meal in a pill, I find that abhorrent. Um, and I, I guess you do too, because one of the things you say at, towards the end of the book is you say, what better way to affirm the goodness of life than with good food? And to me, you know, that's going to speak to the people who like food. And the, the rest of them probably not interested in the philosophy of food anyway. So about a year or so ago, um, I went to a presentation by my colleague down the hall who had taken a trip to Antarctica, and he's an entomologist, and he gave a presentation and a slideshow about these some little insects that live in this really cold water in Antarctic and he and his team and some grad students were there kind of, you know, fishing through this freezing water with their bare hands. And it looked really unpleasant to me, but whatever, that's what entomologists do. But, you know, I think he spent as much time talking about the, the food on the ship <laughs> and, and, and the food in the camp as he did, um, did his research. And so, uh, you know, that's that's what one does when when you have uh, when you have a little bit of time and a little bit of resource and uh, right you 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 want to seek out new foods and that's often what what colors an experience what makes it better or worse is uh, you know is, is is what you had to eat. David Kaplan, author of Food Philosophy: An Introduction. Of course, we only really scratched the surface. But the website for his Philosophy of Food project offers loads more resources if you want to go further. And I'll put a link to that and his book in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. You can let me know what you think of food philosophy there on my website or on social media. Eat Podcast on Twitter and Eat This Podcast on Instagram. My thanks to the generous people who support the podcast with a donation. They keep the lights on and they make it possible for me to share transcripts and indeed the whole podcast for free and ad-free. I hope you'll consider joining them by signing up at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And that's it for another episode. Next time... I'll be going bananas. So until then, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.